Hello and welcome to episode 93 of the Conversations with Ross podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. I'm thrilled to be joined right now by Harry Lennox. Harry's an actor who's currently set to star in NBC's new drama, The Blacklist. You can catch the premiere of The Blacklist Monday, September 23rd at 10 p.m. Eastern. Harry, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Great to be talking with you, Ross. Harry, let's start at the beginning. Tell me what initially attracted you to acting in the first place. I was a sophomore in high school, uh, somewhat in between baseball season and, and, and track and field season, and uh, there wasn't a whole lot to do, but I saw these pretty girls coming up uh, via bus to do some rehearsals for a play, I found out, and uh, I was curious, and I went and found out that they were auditioning and so forth, and I decided why not give it a try, and I got booked on the show. It was actually a high school production of Guys and Dolls. I was at the time in a, in a high school seminary, and uh, so that was our only real chance to interface with, with females, unless you were some sort of a basketball star or something, which I was not. So that's the first impetus. That was the first impetus. So you started acting to try and get the girls. Did you get the girls in the end? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> at, least, at least not that year. <laughs> Do you come from a theatrical family or an acting family? Was that in the background at all? No, not at all. My family uh, was uh, more or less blue-collar workers. My father had been a veteran in the first, in the Second World War. I'm sorry, uh, and my mother was a was a laundress, worked in hotels, uh, doing any number of of jobs. They met in Chicago and got married there, and more or less just, uh, raised their children uh, by, by by doing labor. But my father was an erstwhile singer. He liked to sing. Uh, he wanted to be the next Billy Eckstein, but that was more of a hobby than, than a true passion or calling, from what I understand. He died in my very early childhood. I wasn't quite two when he died, so I never had a, a chance really to know him and, and find out exactly what his ambitions were with regard to the arts. How did acting for you start as a recreation? Obviously, that's how it starts for everyone or for most people. How does it go from a recreation to something that you can pursue as a career? It's a great question. I, I think uh, for me, it was seeing somebody uh, do the job that I was doing as a high school student. That is, there was a professional version of Guys and Balls that I had a chance to look at. And when I saw... Um, these actors uh, who could sing and dance and who were just filled with life and these colorful outfits and all of this choreography, I was, I was stunned. And I think, you know, obviously I'd seen things before, but I'd never seen them uh, from the point of view of, of a practitioner. I, I would imagine it's very difficult to look at a baseball game once you've played in the game. You know, once you've been on the field, you have more knowledge about what all the ins and outs are uh, when, when you engage in it. So I was struck and uh, in some ways conscious stricken to try to improve my abilities at the form. And so I decided to, to study and to labor intensively in order to apply or to achieve some form of a facility with it. Did you initially move to L.A. or to New York when you decided to pursue it as a career after school? I was in Chicago for, uh, for school, so I went to Northwestern University, and Chicago has, of course, a thriving uh, theatrical community. So I stayed in Chicago for a couple of years. Uh, even while I was in school, I was a professional actor, so I actually got my first job when I was in between my sophomore and junior year at uh, Northwestern. And 
more or less worked steadily ever since. So I stayed in Chicago for a couple of years, and then from there I moved out to um, New York, moved here, where I am now. Uh, and then I stayed there for a few years, went back to uh, Chicago, and then from there went on to L.A. Before we get into the blacklist, I want to talk about your role this summer in Man of Steel. Tell me about that part and what that set was like. Well, Man of Steel is, of course, a towering achievement, financially speaking. Of course, it did what it needed to do to get the attention that I think it deserved. Uh, I think it's a review, a revamping, a uh, reboot, as they say now, of a classic long-loved series. I think what Zach brought to it uh, visually and, uh, and what Christopher Nolan and, and uh, David Goyer brought in terms of the story are perfect for this time that we're in. You know, we're in a less sort of innocent time uh, than when the show was popular on television in the, in the 40s and 50s. And, and, uh, and I think even a less even innocent time than was happening with Christopher Reeve and Richard Donner did their series of it. So I think that this is more reflective of a kind of 21st century view of the world. A, the worldview is a little more nuanced, a little more um, multidimensional, so to say, uh, a lot more gray rather than the black and white. And I, and I like that for one. Uh, I think that it makes it, I think it's a grown man's adult uh, version of, of the Man of Steel, Superman. And, and I'm looking forward to the next two installment or next one installment or whatever it is uh, that is going to happen here. So. It's interesting because obviously we've, we're in a time over the last 10 years or so where these superhero movies are the big blockbuster movies of the summer. They tend to make a lot of money for studios. However, Superman, the most popular superhero, had gone through a lot of rewrites before. They had done a reboot before. It didn't really work. There's been a lot of money spent and there's been a lot of um, failures, I guess, with Superman movies since Christopher Reeve, really. Did you feel the pressure on set that this was supposed to be the big thing, that this was supposed to be a huge franchise setting thing, that they, this is another revamp of Superman? Did you feel that tone at all? Did you feel that pressure as an actor on set? No. No, I didn't. I mean, I think, you know, when you've got Christopher Nolan and Zack Snyder and David Goyer and, uh, and a cast of veteran actors and some newcomers who are so capable and the mighty machine that is, you know, uh, the franchise itself, I don't think we really need to... I, I didn't feel any sense of uh, anxiety that it was going to be worthy of, of consideration and, and uh, popular attention. I think that it that was pretty much understood to me because I had seen it, you know, early on. I knew that Henry Cavill was going to be arresting and charming. Amy Adams was going to deliver goods. So for me, it was just really a question of making sure we didn't, um, you know, that, that we just needed to execute everything that had to be done. These kinds of things are intensive in terms of the CGI. Uh, we knew that we had to hit our marks and that sort of thing, but, but, there was no undue pressure that there isn't in any other uh, situation. Sometimes when you have less money, uh, less support, less infrastructure, the, the pressure is, is on way more. Uh, although, of course, that is that not, not to deny that there was some pride that we took in delivering the goods here. We, we knew that we could, and I think we were confident all along that we were doing that. A very different film for you is Mr. Sophistication. Tell me about that. Mr. Sophistication is Ron Waters, who's uh, become, and over the past three years, my alter ego. 
Uh, he's a guy who lives his life in real time on stage as a uh, more of a raconteur than comedian. But uh, for you know, for most people, he's a stand-up. And uh, as most stand-ups are, he's a complicated guy. And he, in the pursuit of his of his career, he confronts the same demons that confronted them before, and he has to learn how to, he learns to navigate them in this new era. So I think that uh, for me, it's a, it's a simple story, a love triangle story. Uh, the complications are involved in the characters. And, and I think that in the actors that we have playing them, particularly Tatum O'Neill and Paloma Guzman, we've got two, two women who are beautiful and who are nuanced and who have, uh, uh, great, great uh, appeal, at least to, to me, acting opposite them for the for the two months that we shot it. So I'm proud of the movie. It's, uh, as I say, it's, you know, it's not attempt, uh, attempting to reinvent the wheel, but it is a fresh look at at an old story. And and I hope that it's something that people will give their attention to. It's It's very well done. We're very excited for people to see it starting in September. You're also the executive producer of the film, or one of the executive producers of the film. How long has this film been in the works? Well, the film came to me, I think, in 2009. Uh, my friend Danny Green, who wrote it and directed it, uh, had an idea, and he showed it to me. I read it that night, got back to him the next day, and said I wanted to do it. Uh, in terms of the gestation of, of the character, I started working in earnest on it sometime in 2009, and we began filming in February of 2010, and right now we're we're in August of 2013. So, you know, independent movies take a while to complete. The journey, generally speaking, is pretty long if you want to do a good job with it. And we we paid attention to every area of detail that we could before we released it uh, to the to the to the people. Uh, we've checked every check, dotted every I, crossed every T, and uh, we are proud to be associated with this, our first venture into uh, filmmaking. How did you go about raising money for the film? I talked to a bunch of friends, mostly from Chicago, and um, many of whom had asked me in the past if I had any ideas or plans of doing something of my own, and they were uh, very helpful and very supportive. I went to those friends, some, some came through and some didn't, and in the contingency of, of those who did not come through, uh, I was able to rely on a lot of friends and family uh, who I had not talked about, even talked about the film with, and they did come through. And after, you know, three years of working on this, we actually are very close to the original budget that we had it set at. Uh, so we, we were very proud that we were able to do what we said we were going to do. Uh, we didn't really have a deadline because we owned it, and we still do, and we are proud to uh, and then we were able to get it through to the finish line. So it's now done soup to nuts. And we're already deep in the throes of our second effort, which is called H4, which is, to my knowledge, the first black or the first Shakespeare film set in the black experience. Uh, it's Henry IV Parts One and Two, and it is a feature film which is going to be coming out in the early part of next year. Why do you suppose it's taken so long to see Shakespeare as done by all black actors? There have been various productions of it on stage. For example, um, from as early as 1827, there was a group in New York called the African Grove Theater 
and they were arguably at some point the only American Native Americans actually, uh, or that is, the people native to America that were doing Shakespeare. Uh, most of the Shakespeare at that time was imported from England and so forth. So black people have a long tradition of doing Shakespeare. Of course, there's a very famous Mercury Theater production of Voodoo Macbeth that was John Houseman's and, uh, and Orson Welles' production went on to break Broadway records. Uh, and, of course, some people, some people believe that Othello is a black Shakespeare play or movie, but it isn't. Why it is not um, been in film form, I don't know. Uh, I don't know that it's... I don't know that I'm absolutely correct here because I haven't seen every Shakespeare film, but to my knowledge, uh, no one has set the Shakespearean plays into the black world. And my guess is, is that it's daunting. It's a, it's a sizable undertaking. It takes a lot of time. Uh, it can't really be plied by novices. You really have to have your homework done. So to that end, we, I think also for the first time, actively, uh, in terms of a black film of Shakespeare, uh, we actively included our scholars. And we have a, an eminent Shakespearean scholar by the name of Dr. Ayanna Thompson, uh, who wrote the screenplay for us. And we have a brilliant dramaturg by the name of Jeffrey Steele, Dr. Jeffrey Steele, who I went to college with. So we were, uh, we wanted to do our due diligence and make sure that, uh, that we had all of our work done on it, all of the background work on it, that we knew what we were trying to say with this. Why Shakespeare, for example? People always ask that question. Why are black people doing Shakespeare? Don't we have our own plays and our own stories and so forth? And we do. But my question has always been, if I have to study Shakespeare in school because it is meant to be universal, and I think it is, then why do I not see people like me doing it? Uh, and if I do see people like me doing it, is it not therefore more resonant uh, to me in terms of my human experience? And I think that's precisely what we have here. There's a lot in what, this, what Shakespeare is talking about, uh, dramatizing, that is applicable to the African-American black experience, any experience, any human experience. And in our case, for example, we're talking about a father and a son, the father who got to the heights of great power, becomes a king uh, through some unusual means, perhaps even unethical means. And then he has to look at his son completely uh, throw away that legacy by wanton, uh, irresponsible behavior. Uh, just in the nick of time, it seems, you know, the son comes to a realization that he has greater responsibility beyond his own libido and, and uh, pleasure principle, and he decides that uh, it is time for him to grow up. I know that story. I've seen that in real life. Uh, to some extent, we're seeing that play out uh, in the Reverend Jesse Jackson and his son, Jesse Jr., who just got uh, sentenced to 30 months in prison. Mm-hmm. But we see, we see these people have legacies, do you see? And in many cases, those legacies are well taken up. The mantle is taken up very responsibly by a son, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., for example, his father uh, was a preacher. Martin Luther King became a great and influential man. Adam Clayton Powell's father was a great and influential preacher. Adam Powell Jr. became a great man. So we see these kinds of legacies, these, these 
uh, higher, uh, these hereditary hierarchies being passed down in a kind of metaphysical, metaphorical way that I think parallels what Shakespeare is doing in what, what we call the Henriad. Let's shift focus to the Blacklist. Tell me about the show and how the part came to be for you. The Blacklist uh, was one of the few scripts that came in this year. I, and I mean, I mean this was, I was very close to retiring uh, just before the script of The Blacklist came in. I, I kind of decided I wanted to become a producer and concentrate my efforts on that. I find great fulfillment in it and not a lot of great fulfillment in, in much of what is available to me as an actor. Uh, these days. So when the script came in, I was intrigued by it. My brother's former law enforcement. I actually am a uh, spokesperson for a group called the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives, or NOBLE. And so I knew people who worked for the FBI, who worked in law enforcement, all branches of, uh, of security for the government. And I was immediately interested in it. And then when I read the script uh, and saw this kind of mastermind intrigue thing going on, uh, it really had my attention. So I went in and met with John Bokenkamp, the lead writer and executive producer, had a good meeting. And then the next thing I knew, uh, I was getting a call and asking if I would be interested and available to do it. And of course I was. Uh, When I found out that James Spader was taking the lead. I was uh, over the moon. I, I think he's a tremendous actor, and it's been great uh, being able to watch him work and to work with him. So we've got a good group here. Um, the storylines are, are fantastic. I'm reading the scripts as they come in. Uh, <laughs> each one is a page turner, and I'm 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 very excited to to see it. I'm very excited to keep reading these scripts, and I hope that people agree with me. I think it's worth their time. Tell me about working with James Spader. How does he approach his scene work? Very methodical actor. Uh, he likes to have a physical working relationship with the dialogue, with the words, uh, engage, engaging other actors uh, in the kind of physical action uh, that his character can do. For example, sometimes uh, his character is sitting in a chair, chained up, and, he, and so he relies on other uh, other formidable techniques at, at his disposal uh, to convey the dramatic tension of what's going on. But I like his preparation. He's always prepared. He's uh, generous. Uh, he's facile. He has a great facility with language. And it's just uh, it's a pleasure to watch him work. And as I say, it's a pleasure to work with him. The show hasn't even aired yet, but do you feel like your character or the show itself has changed from the first script you read? <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be giving away secrets there, brother. <laughs> but yes, I think uh, any, any good character is going to change. Any good character is going to develop. Do you know what I mean? That's the whole point, really, of long-running series, should, should we be lucky enough to be one. Uh, a serialized drama, to some extent, uh, really is about what things change and what things stay the same. You know, uh, I, One of my favorite shows, maybe my very favorite show, in television history is Gunsmoke. And and it's always interesting to watch over the years how Matt Dillon changes, how Kitty changes, how Doc Adams changes, who comes in uh, to shake up the pot from time to time. They had some cast cast changes. For example, Dennis um, Weaver started off 
as a Matt Dillon sidekick, and then it becomes a guy named Ken Curtis who plays Festus. And just that change uh, radically reconfigures the tone of the show uh, in a way that I think is very wholesome. It, it, it just helps it to grow and to evolve rather than to just be chaotic. And I think that any good drama uh, should be able to roll with the punches. Uh, it should be topical. It should be relevant to our time. So uh, as part of that overall structure, I hope that my character continues to develop, to change, to, to learn, to, to fail, to succeed. And uh, I'm looking for, you know, I don't know all of what's going to happen, of course, but I'm as excited as anybody to find out. Harry, you mentioned that before The Blacklist came your way, you thought seriously about retiring from acting and pursuing other things in the field. Is that because of the quality of work that's being presented to you? It is uh, because of the quality of work that is being presented. Uh, I find that there's a, a disturbing race to the bottom here with regard to black movies in particular, black television shows. Nothing satisfying, really, in a, in a deep sense. Uh, nothing that requires special training, special skill. Uh, you know, people decry, of course, that rappers and athletes and these people are taking jobs from actors, but there's, they are as capable of doing most of this work as anybody else. <laughs> you know, it, does, it doesn't require great skill to play a slave or, or a, a, a depraved, drug-addicted you know, rapist. These things are not uh, difficult to do. And I think increasingly that is what is left for us to do. And I think the black filmmakers, black producers themselves, writers are equally guilty in the perpetuation of these images, which should disturb all of us because they do not help this, the current condition and reinforce the idea that somehow this behavior is indicative of real black America. It is not. And so rather than to complain about the quality of these things, rather than suck up all the air in the room, uh, I just figured I'd leave it, the work that is to say to those who find some joy in doing it. I just, on the whole, for most of it, I don't find any such joy. You're listening to Harry Lennox. You can check out The Blacklist this fall, Monday nights at 10 on NBC. Harry, I want to mix it up a little bit. Tell me about your worst audition experience. <laughs> well, there's quite a few. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know one. I was, uh, <clears throat> I was at the Goodman Theater, <laughs> and it was some, I can't even remember the name of the show, something I wasn't all that interested in or whatever, and I came in and Things are going relatively quickly, so I didn't have to wait for a very long time. And uh, I went in, and the director, the person who was going to be making a decision about whether or not I was going to be in this, would not look up from the page, would not look up from the table. Uh, barely said hello. <laughs> didn't look up, didn't see anything that I had done. Uh, it was just the strangest, most alienating experience that I'd ever had. And, uh, I don't look forward to to repeating it anytime soon. What do you do when you're in that situation? So many of the actors who have come on the podcast have talked about being in auditions and just being in a room where no one's paying attention to you. How do you get the attention of a producer or director or a casting director when the room is lost? I, sometimes you don't. <laughs> sometimes you don't. But, and, and if you do something radical or abrupt or something, uh, you know, you'll probably definitely not get the job. You don't want to antagonize the people. Uh, you normally 
when you're auditioning, it's kind of like being naked and you almost don't want to draw more attention to yourself uh, than is required. It's a great paradox. You have to be looked at, but you don't want to be uh, a freak. You don't want to be ogled, so to speak. So you, you, uh, it's a delicate balance. Uh, you hope that your work is what draws the attention to the person, and sometimes it is, and sometimes it isn't. And in those cases, I think it's best just to, to leave as small a footprint as possible and, and get out. <laughs> so that's, that's normally what I do, is I, I try to leave gracefully. Do you feel like you've changed your audition style since when you were first starting, when you were first breaking in? Have you changed the way you audition? I try not to audition at all anymore. I mean, I'm not, you know, because <laughs> I, I don't like it. I don't like auditioning. Uh, sometimes, you know, sometimes they're better than others. But uh, in most cases, these days, if somebody wants to see my work or, you know, know what I'm capable of, then they can go to Google and, or YouTube and punch me up and, uh, and see the work there. It's just about everything can be found on the Internet. So in most cases, uh, I... I'm not going to audition. If Martin Scorsese calls up and he wants me to read for, you know, for the part of Frederick Douglass or something, that's one thing. But in most cases, uh, uh, I'm, I've taken myself out of that rat race. Your earliest credit on IMDb dates back to 1989. Tell me about how you have seen the industry change over that time. Tremendous development in terms of technology. Uh, I don't think it's made the the process much faster, to be honest with you, but I think it has made it made the means of production value uh, much more accessible. So I think what has happened is that uh, Hollywood has become, or the Hollywood industry has become decentralized. It's it can it can be just about anywhere now. Uh, Louisiana, for example, uh, Vancouver for example, any number of places. So I've seen a decentralization and I've seen um, a almost a collusion, if you will, between the rank and file worker, the actor, and and the studio. So nobody really knows where this thing is going. So what, I, what I'm seeing going on is that uh, fewer actors are making more of the money and uh, not necessarily looking out for the other actor. And all the producers are looking out for themselves. I've seen this very top-heavy trend where, you know, few people have more. And I think it's reflected in the society as a whole. There's uh, a growing chasm between the has and the have-nots, and I don't see any great change in that happening. The good news is that uh, is that the have-nots can now afford to make their own projects increasingly. One of the shows you appeared on in the past is Dollhouse. Tell me about working with Joss Whedon and how he runs the set. Joss wasn't around a whole lot when we were there. He, of course, is, is in high demand as a, uh, as a filmmaker and a, and a writer, and he had a lot of other things going on. So I didn't see him a whole lot while he, when he was there. Uh, he was engaging and, you know, a, a nice enough, uh, guy, but I cannot say that we were close or worked together closely. Um, he was, you know, I guess do, doing a lot of other things, but but seemed, you know, a very talented guy. Looking back at your career, is there anything you would do differently? Uh, other than avoid it entirely? <laughs> <laughs> 
other than other to go back and become the priest I had always intended to. Uh, <laughs> I think, given that what I had to work with, I did a pretty good job navigating it. You know, as a career, um, I would have loved to have had you know more opportunities, but you know the story isn't over yet. I got a lot of life ahead of me. I hope, uh, God willing. And uh, I'm trying to I'm trying to make up for those things I was not offered by others, uh, and do those things for myself, and to bring others along with me. It's it's really a great joy to be a producer now, and I intend to be very active as a producer. And so, I don't know. I wouldn't do anything different uh, about the past, but I intend to very much change and shake up what's going on in the present and, and the future. What are the things about being a working actor that? actors need to know that no one really tells you about in acting school, especially African-American actors? What are the added obstacles of being African-American? I think the added obstacles of being a, a black actor, if, if you want uh, to be described as that, the, the real difficulty is that uh, what they don't tell you in school is that no matter what you do, <laughs> there is no way that you'll ever be anything other than a black actor. Now, you may be cast in parts that are not traditionally or typically written for a black actor, but no one, not including yourself, oneself, uh, will ever see you as anything other than, than what you are. I think that we have aspired uh, incorrectly, uh, having drunk the Kool-Aid to some sort of neutral place where we can achieve some status that is anything other than what we are. Uh, there is no... A way to avoid association with race or gender, really, unless you go through extraordinary means, most of which are counterproductive to a, a satisfying end. So I, I would say that you know, be be prepared and be willing to uh, to work for yourself, to do your own work if you want to be satisfied and utilize the training and and, and skill set that you learn in these very rigorous programs. Uh, if, I could, if, I, if I could go back and tell you who would look at the uh, playwrights that I read, we read Aeschylus and Euripides and uh, Tennessee Williams, Shakespeare, and, uh, William Ng, you name it. Uh, but most of us are never going to be able to, to do that kind of work and make a living. It's just, it's just not going to happen. So I would say take the training uh, apply it to your craft, aspire and work hard to be the best actor that you can be, to be prepared at all times. But if you really want to work out those muscles, be prepared to do your own work and be prepared to, to, to work hard at it. Uh, it's not easy uh, to do this. People don't just willing overnight make you a star. That's, that's a fantasy. It's an illusion. Uh, and even when it does happen, the price for it is steep. Uh, but there are no shortcuts in this business. So I would tell anyone trying to uh, to do this as a career that understands there are no shortcuts. It could be lonely out there when you're trying to stick to the principles that you have applied and learned. And uh, but if you see it through, it could be okay. You'll be all right. But it's 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 a long and. Uh, sometimes arduous task. You've been listening to Harry Lennox. Harry is an actor who's currently set to star in NBC's new drama, The Blacklist. You can catch the premiere of The Blacklist Monday, September 23rd at 10 p.m. Eastern. Harry, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. 
had a great, uh, great talk with you, Officer. Thank you for your questions, Joe.